This morning, we are starting a new series on gospel community. And I want to explore with you one of the most important commitments of the entire Christian life. After loving God, there is one thing that we must do as the followers of Jesus, that if we don't do this, we miss the entire point of the Christian life. The Bible even says that if we claim to to love God and don't do this one thing, it's up for debate as to whether we actually really do love God like we claim. So, what is the most important commitment of the Christian life after loving God? Spoiler alert, it's not your grades. It's not how we do on the GRE or LSAT or MCAT. It's not our career. It's not our bank accounts or our achievements or our family life or marital status. It's not, um, it's not even how much truth we know. It's not how much good we do. It's not how much we pray or how much we worship or how much we sacrifice and die to ourselves. After loving God, the single most important commitment of the Christian life is to love people and to love them with a very specific kind of love that is unique to Christianity. To love others with the, in the same way that Jesus Christ loved us is the most important thing in the Christian life after learning to love God. So a couple scriptures to establish this, even though I know you know it. I don't want to escape, as we start this, this summer series, and it's only four messages on gospel community, it is Christian love, uniquely Christian love, that undergirds all of Christian community. So a couple scriptures. In John 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Galatians 5.14 says, the whole law is filled up, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then 1 John chapter 3, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We know that we have passed from death to life. In other words, we know we're saved. We know we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So this morning, as we kick off this series, I want to explore with you what 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us about Christian love. 1 Corinthians 13 has been called the greatest, stronger, and deepest thing the Apostle Paul ever wrote. It's also been said to be um, some of the best literature ever, the, the quality of the Greek of the prose of 1 Corinthians 13 raises it up to be among the best literature that's ever been written. And it has been called the most profound exposition of love in all of literature. So I'd like to read it together with you responsively. So look up at the screen, you'll figure out which part is yours, um, and men and women and me. 
Paul writes, now I will show you the most excellent way. Men? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When we were children, we spoke like children. We thought like a child. We reasoned like a child. When we grew up, we gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. And everyone? All right, we all know that there are lots of different kinds of love, right? Um, We just had the celebration of romantic marital love yesterday in the royal wedding. There is brotherly love. There is family love. In Greek, there are actually four words to describe four different kinds of love. And, um, And the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13 is very interesting. Many of you have heard this Greek word before. The Greek word is agape. Shows up 10 times in these verses. And it's interesting that agape as a description of love, it's the word that that almost always describes God's love in the New Testament. And the Greek word agape is interesting because it was very infrequently used prior to Christianity. And when Jesus Christ came and gave his life so that others might live, There had to be a new word. We had to find something to describe that kind of love. And the word that the early Christians landed on was this word agape that they then infused with the uniqueness of Christian love. So one commentator says this. He says, the word agape was adopted in the New Testament because the love of God as seen in Jesus of Nazareth required a new word. God's love completely transcends all human ideas or expressions of love. It's a love for the utterly unworthy, a love which proceeds from a God who is love, a love lavished on others without a thought of whether they are worthy to receive it or not. It proceeds rather from the nature of the lover than from any merits in the beloved. And I don't think we can overemphasize this point. We are very familiar hearing the word love in Christian context. But when we talk about Christian love, this was a new thing when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth. And so another commentator says this. He says, agape comes to us as a quite new creation of Christianity. 
Without it, nothing that is Christian would be Christian. So I want to show you three major themes, look at three themes as we examine 1 Corinthians 13. I want to show you the Christian life without love in verses 1, 2, and 3. Then I want to show you what Christian love does. And then I want to look at the absolutes of Christian love. So the Christian life without Christian love. Paul cuts to the chase right off the, out of the gate here, and he tells us in the first three verses what our Christian -like lives are like without expressing this unconditional, self-giving, bold love of Jesus Christ. First, he writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Translation, when Christians don't live into Christ-like love, we are just plain annoying. We become annoying and grating in the world and to each other. Secondly, Paul writes, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if, all, if I, I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Translation, if you have great power and great knowledge and a great mountain-moving faith, but are not committed to express Christian love, then you are pretty much insignificant and useless. You're nothing. You're nothing. Ouch. When Christians are too busy, too self-absorbed, too preoccupied, too selfish, too self-centered to practice Christian love, we are utterly useless and insignificant. Our, we, we will be saved, but our lives amount to nothing. Then thirdly, Paul writes, if I, give all, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Translation, sacrificial generosity, extreme self-denial, without love are a colossal waste of time. If we gain nothing, it means we are a failure. All right, Paul doesn't give us any room to wiggle out of this when we as the followers of Jesus Christ do not commit ourselves to express this unique and unconditional and powerful and bold and selfless love of God, when we're too busy, too preoccupied, too self-centered, we are annoying, we are useless, and we are a failure. So, with that rather blunt and uncompromising introduction, the Apostle Paul goes on to make sure we know what agape love is. Now, you don't have to take notes on all of this. This is all in your Bible. I'm just going to give you some headlines and a couple sentences about 10 statements that Paul makes about love. And a couple things are, are obscured in our English translation. Um, in the English translation, we, we use adjectives to describe love. So we, we, most of our translations say love is this, love is this, love is not that. Paul actually used verbs so that I think his intention was not that we would know what love is somehow in our head, but that we would know what love does. 
Because love is something that's active. It's not something that's knowledge. It's something that we do. And the second thing that's obscured in the the English translations is that these verbs are not one and done verbs. It's not like love does these things once and then it finishes. All of the verbs are continual continual and, and, and active. They are ongoing verbs. The Christian love that Paul is talking about here is not something that we do once, but it's something that we work on for the rest of our lives. And guess what? We're going to continue to grow in love through all eternity. So Paul goes on to make sure we know what Christian love is. And first of all, he says, love acts patiently, not impatiently. How patient are you? Christian love, Christ-like love, is calm, it's measured, it's unhurried, it's steady, it waits for the right time and waits as long as it needs to wait to express itself to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. One of the sure signs of, um, of a self-centered relationship is when we get impatient. Things aren't going the way we think they ought to go, so we get annoyed, and we usually get annoying, all right? When we are impatient, it's a sign that we're not expressing this unconditional and constant, calm, steady love of God. So how do you love your family? And how do you love your roommate? How do you love your spouse? How often do you lose your patience with people at work? Christian love has a commitment to continually learn how to be patient and steady forever and ever, especially when we don't get what we want or when it doesn't quite meet our expectations. Secondly, Paul says, love shows kindness, nothing less. As followers of Jesus Christ, we know that every human person is created with the, a unique imprint of God upon their souls and their lives. It's part of the foundation of Christianity that we believe that every person, doesn't matter whether they agree with us, our theology, it doesn't matter whether they agree with our religion, it doesn't matter if they agree with our, our lifestyle, we believe as Christians that every person is created in the image of God. And because we believe that, we treat every person with honor and kindness. Even a sweetness. The word that Paul uses here is kind of says that we are sweet on people because we know that they are created in the image of God. Christian love is gentle. It is grace-filled. It is never abrupt. Um, When we do this right, I think we confuse the world because they wonder how on earth can you have this this gentle, kind, nurturing, sweet love for so many. When we do it right, Jesus says, the world actually knows that we are his followers if we love one another. Number three, Paul says that love seeks other people's best. Love does not burn with envy. No judginess, no jealousy, no comparing, no gossiping, no envy. Because when we love with the love of God, we are just so overjoyed that other people 
are, are lifted up, that other people are successful, that other people are thriving. We are so caught up in other people's great joy that we never stop to compare with thinking that we somehow aren't getting the kind of recognition that we want. Christian love boldly, boldly celebrates other people's best good. Number four, Christian love is selfless. Selfless and not boastful. Bragging and boasting is about me, myself, and I. Me, 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 me. Look at me, praise me, give me attention. Fallen human nature creates us into or, or is what causes us to be me monsters. Risen human nature, those who have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to live in newness of life, risen human nature allows us to slay the me monster so that we can give of ourselves. So, so as it says about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself so that he could fill all of us. That's what Christian love does. Christian love goes to work and tries to find ways to give of itself so that others can be filled. Christian love goes to our schools and our, our, um, our, where our families are, and it seeks to give anything it can so that others can be filled with life. And you know, as Christians, we know we don't live for the praise of people. When we are, are, are craving the praise of people, something's, there's a deficit, something's wrong within us. As Christians, we live for the praise of God. You realize it doesn't matter what people think of you. It doesn't matter whether they praise you or whether they criticize you. It doesn't change who you are. Who you are is who you are, regardless of what people might think or say about you. And if everyone approves of you and Jesus does not, then your life is in trouble. If Jesus approves of, you and no, approves of you and no one else does, then you have a good life. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, said once, one person with God is always a majority. Number five, love is humble. It is not puffed up. Puffed up people have to always be, be babysat for their egos. Puffed up people have to have, to have, have these affirmations and these pats on these, these way to go attaboys all the time. Humble people don't need that because they're not busy thinking about themselves all the time, so they don't need other people to think about them either. Again, fallen human nature has to be treated certain ways because it feels like it has certain rights and it has certain status and it has certain requirements and expectations and demands. Risen human nature can be humble. It shows up to serve and not be served. It watches other people and it's able to rejoice in others without thinking back about itself. Christian love doesn't have time to, to boast and brag and, and, and kind of this, doesn't have time for this selfish pride because we're too busy trying to look out for the other people around us. Number six. Christian love is honoring. It's never rude. Christian love is honoring. And the Greek word here for rude has to do with all forms of unseemliness. Christian love never dishonors. Christian love never curses people out. Christian love doesn't yell at people when they cut us off in traffic. 
Christian love doesn't, doesn't carry a grudge when someone has said something negative about us. Christian love doesn't berate. It doesn't call people names. It doesn't mock them because we know that every person is created with a unique glory of the image of God upon them. And when we berate, when we name call, when we curse others, we are slapping God in the face. So the next time you're driving and you get cut off or someone's annoying, could you please try to pray a blessing for them instead of a curse because Christian love is not rude. It's always honoring. And you know what? It especially comes into play when we don't get what we want, when our expectations are not met. It's easy to love people who don't cross us, but we live in a fallen world. We are fallen. We are broken. We are, are bent which means that there are times when we're going to disagree with people and we're going to cross sabers and we are going to be rude sometimes with our spouse, with our coworkers, with our friends. Can we please own it as soon as we see it? And can we confess it and ask for forgiveness so that we can reset into Christian love that is always honoring and never rude? Number seven, Christian love is self-giving, not self-seeking. We know this. Jesus came to give his life so that we might live. The model for our love is Jesus Christ. And he asks us to imitate him and give our lives so that others can be fully alive. When you get a bunch of people trying to bless others, it changes a society. We can change Boston you can change your school. You can change your workplace. We can change within our culture if we will love unconditionally, selflessly, um, and self-giving like Jesus Christ. Here's, here's a way that I see this go sideways too often. Too often, it's easy for us to love not the person that's in front of us as they actually are, but we love more our image or our picture of what we think they should be. Whenever we love our image of that person or our expectation more than we love the actual person, that person always has to strive to meet up to our expectations. And you realize nobody on the face of the earth was created to meet your expectations. Human beings were created to meet Christ's expectations and not yours. When you love your vision or your dream of what you want them to become, you will erode the people in your life. Christian love loves people exactly as they are. It loves us so much that we want to help people grow, but it always starts with loving people exactly where they are. Number eight, Christian love is dispassionate. Paul says it's not easily angered. There is anger that is righteous indignation against injustice. That's not what Paul's talking about. The anger that Paul's talking about here is an anger when we don't get our way, when we don't feel like we've been treated right, when we don't have our expectations met, when somebody wounds or sins against us or slights us. But you know what? Christian love is not touchy. It doesn't blow up. It doesn't have a temper. Christian love is... Not, it doesn't get angry even when we are sinned against. And again, our model is Jesus Christ on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
And these were people who intentionally wounded Jesus. And he is our model. When we are wounded as Christians, we ask God to forgive the people who have sinned against us because they don't know what they're doing. Which means it's it's an ironic thing. Christian love is dispassionately passionate. It's absolutely passionate for people's best good, but not in a way that demands that people meet our expectations in some way. Number nine, Christian love lets people off the hook. Christian love keeps no record of wrongs. The word that Paul uses here is the word for a ledger, an accounting book, an accounting ledger. Christian love doesn't hold things against people. It throws away the ledger completely. This is hard. Some of us are really, really, really good at remembering everyone who slighted us. And we've made vows that we will never trust them again. We will never open up to them again. We will never let them get close to us. That is not Christian love. Christian love doesn't keep a record of wrong. Christian love throws away the ledger completely. Now, when you think about that, that's just plain scary, isn't it? And so people who have been wounded in love in some way say, but how do I protect myself so I don't get hurt? And here's the deal. If you protect yourself, you will never love like Jesus. Because to love means that you become vulnerable. If your greatest goal is to protect yourself from hurt or unpredictability, you will not love like Jesus. C.S. Lewis says it really, really well. This is what he says. It's up on the screen. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. Again, Jesus is our, our example on the cross. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of of love is hell. Brothers and sisters, Christian love doesn't try to protect itself. And when it's been wounded and deeply hurt, it works through that. It doesn't make light of sin against it. It overcomes sin by learning to forgive and to forgive completely. Christian love overcomes sin and hurt, always. Number 10, last one that Paul has in this list. He says, love rejoices in the truth and not in evil. And the word that Paul uses here is a compound word. It's a word that that intimates that love comes alongside people and celebrates and rejoices in what is true about them. It is very participatory. It's very engaging. The way that I've watched this happen over the last couple years here at Cornerstone is I've watched as people come alongside other people and rejoice in what is truest about them. 
And the, there's such a glory when we sit with another person and reflect back to them. Here's what I see that is true about you. Christian love is always on a mission to rejoice in the truth of who other people are because the world, the flesh, and the devil have so many lies that they want us to believe. Christian love stands guard and unmasks the lies and rejoices in the truth. So in the next two verses, Paul gives us some absolutes about Christian love. Um, if you've ever, I mean, if you're married, then hopefully you've, you've done some marriage counseling or pre-marriage counseling, but there's a rule in marriage that you're never supposed to use the word never or the word always. You never treat me the right way. You always hurt my feelings. You always disappoint me. You're not supposed to do that in marriage and in relationships because they're such categorical terms and they're, they're, just, they're just so absolute. And so in, in marriage and relationships, they don't use those words. They're just fighting words. Well, Paul uses the word always and never in the next two verses to show us how absolute Christian love is. First, he says, Christian love always protects. It's always on guard for the sake of others. It's always watching out for other people's reputation and other people's good. It's always alert. Christian love, when, when there's a group of people standing in a circle and somebody's just a little bit outside of the circle, Christian love opens up to bring that person in so that they can be part of the circle. Secondly, Christian love always trusts even when we've been hurt and sinned against. Christian love, when trust has been broken, finds a way. And it, it, it's, it's soul surgery, but Christian love finds a way to return to trust. Christian love always hopes. Christ is in us, and he is the hope of glory. Christian love, because the spirit of the living God dwells within us. We find a way to hope for what is better, to hope for what is best, to wait until God finishes his work. Number three, Paul says, Christian love always perseveres. And the term here is, is a term used of a military garrison that is being attacked. So when there's an onslaught of attack against our love, Christian love always perseveres. When the world wants to quit, when everything inside of us says, I don't want to do this anymore, Christian love perseveres. And then Paul uses the word never. In the next verse, he says, love never fails. Never, ever, 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 ever. Love never fails. There are going to be some hiccups along the way. Okay? There are going to be some times where we're going to clash. We're going to tangle. We're going to have arguments. There are going to be times when we sin and times when we hurt each other. But Christian love always, 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 always comes back. Christian love never fails, which means that in the family of Jesus, we never vote anyone off the island. We are committed to love each other no matter what. For our entire lives, our Christian love will never fail. In verses um, 9 through 12, Paul essentially says this. He says it's time to grow up. When we're children, it makes sense that we act like selfish me monsters. But it's time to grow up our Christian love. Put away the self-centeredness and the self-preoccupation of childhood and grow up into love for Christ. So, 
a number of you know that over the last two years, um, it was not quite two years ago, but almost, um, I kind of had this conversation, ongoing conversation with God. And I, I decided to risk what I called a, an experiment in bold love. I thought, heck, I'm older than all you guys anyway. You guys never have to like me. <laughs> what if I just, I, I see Jesus in the gospel risking great love. And I thought, what would it be like if I tried to do that? And there are all kinds of possibilities. I mean, I could do it badly. I could make mistakes, which I will, I promise. I could be rejected. I could be abandoned. I, it's weird. I feel less fear of you guys rejecting me than of you abandoning me. If you reject me, we're still in it together. But if you abandon me, then I feel kind of lost because of childhood kinds of stuff. But I decided, you know what? I want to do an experiment of what bold Christian love would look like. Um, in the last year and a half, two years, I have prayed my heart out. I've puzzled my brain out trying to figure out how to love people better than I knew how to love them. I spent untold hours with people listening and asking questions, trying to reflect back to them their glory and their grace. And I want to tell you guys, the last two years of my life have had more joy than any other time, comparable time in my entire life. Living this life of committed Christian love is one of the greatest it, I mean, Christian love is one of the, the greatest gifts we can give someone, but living a life of committed Christian love has just so much joy that I can hardly contain it. Some of you get tired of me showing up to meetings and saying, you know, I'm having the time of my life. I'm having more fun in ministry than I've ever had before. And I said to a bunch of you that I hope that you have half as much joy in your life when you're 62 that I have in my life right now. I've realized that you don't have to wait. There is incredible power and joy in living in an unconditional, self-giving, bold life of Christian love. So, um, I received a note this last week, and I asked the person who wrote it if I could read it with you, because I want to show you some of the power and the joy of Christian love that God is inviting every single one of us to live into. Dear Pastor Bill, as I prepare to leave Boston, words fail to express the overwhelming love and gratitude I feel for your presence in my life. How precious our relationship has been to me. Never could I have imagined the love God has shown me through you. I remember our very first meeting at Flower Bakery on February 22, 2017. I used the gifts and calling coaching as an excuse to take an hour of your time but secretly I came to you because I had been lost for so long and I needed help seeking Jesus. I was so nervous to meet with you. You picked up my hand and told me that like a shepherd, God never left me. And I remember tears came to my eyes because I had never considered God's love to be unconditional like that. And I'd never known a person who would sit across from me and tell me. I could never thank you enough for how you've come alongside me ever since. When I was afraid to turn away from sin, you tenderly told me you loved me just the same. When I struggled to learn who I am in Christ, you spent hour after hour teaching me and encouraging me. When I shared glimpses of my broken past, stories I had never told anyone before, you lifted me up to the healer 
And somehow you gave me hope that Jesus would provide another tomorrow. You have prayed for me, cried with me, celebrated each victory with me. Thank you for being an embodiment of Christ in my life. I am who I am in Christ because of your discipleship. I never knew a relationship could be so deep and personal and loving. I want every one of you to be able to read notes like that about your love because you have a power to love on people, to nourish them, to draw out their greatest good and their greatest glory. Every one of you who is a follower of Jesus Christ, because the spirit of the God who is agape love lives within you, you have a divine power to love other people and enable them to become the best of who God made them to be. And there is no greater joy than to love like that. So I'd like to give you just a very simple summer assignment. Um, we've only got four weeks in this, um, this series on gospel community. I'd like to give you some daily and weekly and monthly suggestions to lean into this kind of Christian love daily. You could wake up every morning this summer with a prayer asking the Holy Spirit to love everyone who comes across your path that day with the love of Jesus. It's simply a prayer and orientation. Dear God, use me with everyone. And when we pray that, we open our eyes and start noticing people that we hadn't noticed before. And daily, I just encourage you to run an experiment. Daily, you could decide that you're going to love three people in some specific intentional way. Love a family member, a friend, and a stranger. You could say, dear God, help me find, help me focus on a family member, a friend, and a stranger. And you don't have to do a lot. Maybe you're just going to open the door for a mom with a stroller. Or maybe you're going to leave a bigger tip. Or maybe you're going to say thank you to a cashier. Or maybe you're going to text a short prayer. Dear mom, I prayed for you this morning, and I want to say thank you for not (laughs) killing me when I was a brat. Okay? You could love, you could decide every day, or every day that you're going to love a family member, a friend, and a stranger. Weekly, you could make time to love one person each week a little bit more deeply. Go out for coffee, spend time together, go for a walk, go for a bike ride, and ask them questions about what are the joys in their life? Where are the stresses in their life? And you could choose one person a week, and there's only 12 weeks in the summer. 12 people could be blessed because you invest on them. And it's not for you to get something out of them, just a way for you to minister to and love on and care for them. And by all means, reflect back to them really neat things that you see in their hearts and souls. And and be bold about that. Tell them where you see that they're honorable. Tell them when they're beautiful. Tell them when they're wise. Tell them when when you see things that just make you admire them. And if you can, pray with them. So one person a week, um, pray before you finish. If you can't, pray for them afterwards. But can I encourage you with something? Could you take people's hands and pray with them? So when I meet with with Kevin, um, and we are at the... um, Hey, man. (laughs) And we're at the Boston Public Library in the News Cafe... I hold his hand like this, and we close our eyes, and we take time to pray for one another. 
Something about holding each other's hands when we pray is a way that we can love each other well. And we see that with Jesus. He's constantly reaching out and putting his hand on people's shoulders and on people's heads. Monthly. You could just three times this summer. Why don't you find some place to serve? It could be something here at Cornerstone, the welcome team, the, the all-church meal. Or it could be at Emmanuel Gospel Center or Habitat for Humanity, Seafarer's Mission, some kind of a nonprofit in your neighborhood. Would you just go out of your way to love some people that will have no way to love you back just to express that kind of Christian love? And it's, it'll take some planning. You'll have to figure out some places. Um, but it's kind of fun, actually, to do this together with two or three friends to go to Emmanuel Gospel Center and, and you know, be there for the Refugee Center or to, to go down to, the, to Copley Square when the van comes out at night and it's feeding people who are homeless. Right? Would you just find three times this summer when you would serve? And then monthly. I'd encourage you at least once a month. We, we've, in some ways, we've down-programmed Sun, our, our um, activities at Cornerstone this summer. Uh, we created lots of things, but we're not going to have community groups this summer. And there are lots of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is this. We would like our love to become a personal part of our lives and not an organizational response. So would you go out of your way once a month this summer? Gather with a few people. Have a barbecue. Do a game night. Just gather and be with other people and love on them. But I need to encourage you. Jesus talks about when, when, when um, people do that, when Christians do that. And Jesus says, always look for people who are just a little bit outside the circle and invite them in. He says, it's no benefit to you if you just love on your family and friends. Even the pagans do that. Christian love opens a circle and finds a few others to invite in as well. Would you at least once a month this summer gather a group of people in one of your homes and spend some time together. In conclusion, Jesus, uh, Peter simply says this. I'm uh, sorry, Paul. These three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Friends, there is no, after, after loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul, there is nothing more important there is nothing more powerful or joyful as loving one another with Christian love. Father, would you, would you remind us, most of us already know this. Most of us have read 1 Corinthians 13 plenty of times. Would you let it not be knowledge in our heads, but let it become verbs in our lives. Remind us that without Christian love, we are annoying, we are useless, we are insignificant failures. And remind us that with this kind of love, we can experience a divine power to care for and enjoy your people we can experience a divine power that knits our hearts together in, in a sweet kindness that is sacrificial and other-honoring. We can experience a power in our marriages, a power in our friendships, a power in our families, a power in our church 
so that others will look upon us and see so much joy that they too want to become followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us to love. May this be a summer of Christian love in our lives at Cornerstone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.